I think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to our webpage at ithinkthereforeifan.com. That's all one word. Click on the link that says donate and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Spoiler warning time. This episode, we spoil Westworld, American Horror Story, Better Call Saul, and Bad Times at the El Royale. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Today's episode is about the philosophical content of the HBO series Westworld. Ooh, Westworld. I love Westworld. So Richard, you along with Josh Hader have recently edited a series of papers on Westworld and philosophy. Yeah, just out this week. Great. Well, let's let's just say a few things about Westworld. Uh, so we, there's a little bit of background information. So, and you can help me out on this. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because I think you know more than I do about this topic. R- originally, Westworld was a show in or a movie it, it in the 1970s. A, yeah, a movie okay. in the early 1970s, um, written by Michael Crichton. Oh, Michael Crichton. I and then there that. were a, a, a whole series of projects related to it. Um, there was a Future World, and um, then there was this series that sort of aired very briefly in the 80s. Might have been the early 90s, a sort of um, reimagining, and then HBO's. Um, reimagined it as well. So what HBO has produced um, doesn't very much resemble the original. Um, and the original was really cool. I remember seeing it as a kid and, and um, you know, for a 13 or 14 year old kid, it, it seemed very trippy at the time, um, which I was looking for at that point in my life. I think this is one of the most philosophical shows on television right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. Far and away. So, so the premise is that there's this amusement park that people can go to where they can live out their fantasies. And in particular, these are Wild West fantasies. So these mm-hmm. people can go to this amusement park and everything's set up like you're in the Wild West and it's populated by robots. And they're exceptionally lifelike robots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, indistinguishable from humans. Um in almost every way, right? If you peel back their skin, you, you see the, the cords and the bionics and the positronics and all of that. Um, but, but otherwise, you wouldn't know if you were there. Right. Uh, and you, you say that you peel back the, if you peeled back their skin, you'd see their robot parts. But they also, you know, when you shoot them, they bleed and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So it's not like they're just robot parts. They, yeah, they strongly resemble humans in every respect. If you prick them, do they not um, hurt or whatever the, <laughs> whatever the line is? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, what, what are we going to do today? Um, well, we've talked to a number of people from the book and had them discuss uh, the chapters they wrote, but also 
Um, as was the case with our Twin Peaks episode, we wanted to go a little beyond what was in the book. So we used that as a, a launching off point. Um, so we, we spoke with um, Mia Wood, Pat Croskery, Brian Stiltner, Jason Bradshaw, Christopher Ines, and Christopher Lay. So we'll, we'll do interviews with them, um, and then we'll have our usual assortment of um, what do we like in this week and um, listener musings and so forth. Um, so let's, let's start with, with Mia Wood. Mia Wood is a professor of philosophy at Pierce College in Los Angeles. She's also an adjunct instructor in the University of Rhode Island's online RN to BSN program. Hi, Mia. Hi, Mia. Hello, Richard. Hello, Rachel. Thank you for joining us today. It's, it's nice to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you for having me, and likewise. All right, we wanted to start out by asking you about the problem of other minds. What is the problem of other minds, and how does it apply to Westworld? Okay, so when I think about uh, uh, other minds, um, I first think about my own mind. So um, I have a concept of myself. Um, I'm aware not only of things around me, so I'm conscious, but I'm also aware of myself being aware. Um, And so I would say I have a mind. Um, But how do I know that you have a mind. How do I know that you know, my dogs have minds? What, what would that look like? Um, so, so the problem is uh, whether or not uh, others have minds, and if so, how I can know that. Now, as uh, applies to Westworld, the most immediate question, it seems to me, is, uh, is it possible, well, do hosts have, other, have minds? Um, uh, is it possible for them to achieve uh, mind status? Um, and then if we press that question further, we can also ask the same about, you know, the guests uh, in the park. So, so do the humans uh, all have minds? Um, but primarily the question is, at least initially, do hosts have minds? Can you talk to us a little bit about how different philosophers treat this problem? Oh, well, it's a, it's, um, a really rich and wonderful area, um, and I can say that um, arguably uh, one of the um, earliest um, to treat the problem of other minds is uh, uh, French philosopher René Descartes, um, and uh, his uh, solution uh, to the problem is ultimately to uh, think in terms of uh, self-consciousness, um, but he's not the only one. He's had, and he's also had his critics. So the British uh, uh, early 20th century philosopher uh, Ryle uh, argued that Descartes' view was wrong. Um, more recently, still, you have um, thinkers like Alan Turing, and then later uh, uh, thinkers like John Searle uh, trying to answer the question in a way that is. Uh, most directly applicable to uh, the the host issue, right? Um, can artificial intelligences uh, be said to have minds? And then you have uh, some other uh, thinkers who approach the problem in maybe a slightly different way. Um, Nagel is one such uh, thinker in the 20th century. I think our listeners will really very- enjoy the Nagel. So could you tell us more specifically what he has to say? Oh, sure. Okay. So um, in his uh, essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat?, uh, Nagel um, tries to uh, approach the, the, the problem of uh, essentially what an objective account uh, 
of mind leaves out. Um, in other words, you can take all sorts of instruments, you can take all sorts of, of observa- observation techniques, um, and you'll never get at uh, what it is to have a mind. More specifically, you'll never get at what it is uh, to be conscious precisely because the fundamental feature of consciousness is uh, a point of view or uh, a subjective lens uh, through which all experience uh, happens. So that uh, scientific accounts, generally speaking, are going to fail because scientific accounts are uh, objective uh, accounts and mind is fundamentally or consciousness is fundamentally subjective in nature. Do you think that there's something that it's like to be Dolores? Mm-hmm. Um, so initially it seems not, right? So, so the way that season one proceeds, um, it, you know, we take as given that uh, these human-looking uh, entities are, are just machines. Um, and machines uh, are not uh, conscious, are not conscious. Machines uh, don't think, at least not in the way that you and I do. Um, And so it would seem that uh, Dolores and other hosts um, uh, do not uh, have any sort of subjectivity. But clearly it seems um, toward the end of season one, uh, uh, Dolores and Maeve and uh, a few others seem to be exhibiting, so so you and I seem to observe, that they um, uh, are having experiences, that they have a point of view uh, that makes them um, uh, conscious in a way that a machine is not. So we, uh, so their behaviors are relevant then to uh, whether we should assess that they have minds? Right. So, so oh, I, I mean, not certainly. There's a lot of disagreement amongst uh, philosophers um, about whether or not uh, uh, a behaviorist approach to mind is uh, is good. In other words, um, uh, is it the case that just from behaviors we can draw an inference about what sort of creature we've got? Right. There are problems there. Um, we can't ever really know what's happening for that creature as that creature is because we're not that creature. Um, But it seems like maybe the best we can do is make comparisons between what we experience ourselves. So what I know about my own mental states and how those mental states are exhibited in my actions, if I see similar actions in others, I draw the inference that those actions are caused by uh, ultimately by mental states. And that's the view that Bertrand Russell takes um, in his argument by analogy for other minds. Okay, great. Great. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, yeah, that, that was pretty interesting. Um, next up is Pat Crossgree. You want to tell us a little about Pat? Sure. Well, first, Pat's a dear friend of ours. He is so a dear friend. it's good to talk to him. Um, Pat's an associate professor of philosophy at Ohio Northern University and works on professional ethics and ethical theory. He likes to experiment with classroom versions of the Intercollegiate Ethics Bowl to see which accounts of the various theories prove most helpful for the students. The theories may seem like a maze to the students, but that maze is meant for them. 
Hi, Pat. Hi, Pat. Hey, Richard. Richard, how are you doing? Good, good. good. Thank you for talking to us today. Yeah. Oh, good to talk to you. All right, we wanted to start by asking you about this quote by Alistair McIntyre that man is a storytelling animal. Can you tell us about that? So one fun part about it is that he's actually referring back to Aristotle's famous quote that man is a political animal. Of course, you notice the sexism in there. It's in both of the quotes. Uh, but the idea, we all recognize that we are born in societies. That's what Aristotle's pointing to. And what McIntyre is bringing out is we're all already in the middle of a bunch of stories in our lives. If you look at your life, you're always telling a story, adapting a story, changing a story. Great, so let's talk about how this applies to Westworld. Um, you raised the question of whether the hosts in Westworld are telling meaningful stories. What, what do you mean by a meaningful story and which of the hosts, if any, do you think are telling them? So one of the major story arcs in the, in the Westworld itself is we're following Dolores and Teddy. And we feel that their story is meaningless because it's a never-ending, very simple loop. They're going to someday go down south, right, and live by the sea. Uh, we know it's never going to happen, and we don't really identify with that story. But as Dolores becomes conscious, she has new ambitions and starts telling a new story. And I think that's one of the central themes of the entire series. Nice. What about the guests? What role is story playing telling for the, storytelling playing for them? This kind of a complicated relation with guests because the guests themselves are going to participate in the story, right? So they're going to have the experience like we'd watch a movie. And I think that part of what's happening in the park is that uh, a story which might seem a little bit boring from the outside is pretty exciting uh, if you're participating in it. If a gunslinger is threatening you, it's different from simply reading about a gunslinger. But the series clearly wants us to feel a bit of disdain for the guests, to think that in some sense they're coming from a, of a, a society that has lost creativity. Uh, and so in some ways we get less interested, have less admiration for the guests coming in and their kind of boring, repetitive stories and the newly emerging stories of the hosts, both uh, Dolores and Maeve, actually. Yeah. It seems that you think that uh, suffering plays an important role in narrative. Can you say something about that? Yeah. So one of the philosophers that who influenced McIntyre was uh, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and he thought that suffering was a necessary stage to the creation of entirely new values. So one of the painful things, I guess, about the uh, Westworld is the amount of pain, the amount of suffering that goes on throughout the series, and we feel that it's completely wasted and useless. And Nietzsche thought that about all of mankind, all of history. He looked at history and saw immense pain and thought, how can I, how can I redeem that pain? And the only possibility was that if that pain made possible uh, some kind of growth. Uh, so the, the most famous quote from Nietzsche you'll hear in popular culture is, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. Right? And that, that gets at the, the heart of the idea that, and in fact, we can identify this in ordinary experience in our lives. We go through a painful period of our life and we come out uh, having grown in some way, having appreciate, being able to appreciate a deeper value with a story of our lives, in fact, enriched. Great. Great. Well, thank you very much. That's, that's um, very interesting. Well, thanks. It's good talking to you. Good talking to you. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Um, next up, we have Brian Stiltner. So what is, what is Brian Stiltner's um, dealio, as you kids like to say? Brian Stiltner is a professor of philosophy, theology, and religious studies at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut. His teaching and research are focused on bioethics, virtue ethics, and ethics of war and peace. 
He authored or co-authored Faith in Force and Toward Thriving Communities. Hi, Brian. Thanks for talking to us today. Sure thing, Richard. Great. So um, in your chapter, you discussed the host's rebellion. Is it a just rebellion, both in terms of whether it's a justified response to their predicament and in terms of how it's carried out? So a good question, because I think in order to open up the room for the reader to think what they think, I don't totally come down on what my own answer to that question is. Uh, I'm an ethicist by training, and sometimes ethicists really opine about things, and sometimes they seem to be maddlingly just raising a lot of questions, and and it's good to do both things. So, I, But I think the reader of the article will get the impression that I'm pretty sympathetic to um, the host's rebellion. And so... Um, and, and I'd say, let me just, uh, you know, tell a little bit about what goes into identifying whether something's just under the just war theory that I talk about. And it's these two main areas of whether they have a just cause and decision process leading to, um, rebelling or fighting back and whether they carry it out in a just way. And basically my answer in sort is they have a just cause. They're justified in their rebellion even though rebellion um, in just war theory is always a little bit suspect because it's not being done by a government with legitimate representation of a legitimate ruler, groups that are guerrillas, terrorists, rebels are always a little bit more suspect, but there's always been a place in that tradition that this going back to the Romans um, and to thinkers like St. Augustine, there's always been room for the fact that, well, sometimes the government's totally corrupt and you need to throw, overthrow it. And I think this government of uh, the humans over the hosts is um, is corrupt in how they're treating them. They've got enough um, awareness and moral status that they want their freedom, and they have a just cause. The question of whether they can carry out um, carry it out um, justly is the second question. And there, I play around in the chapter with the fact that some some of the hosts are rebelling justly in how they carry it out. Someone like um, uh, I'm blanking on his name. But um, and someone like Maeve, it, um, her attitude is to use violence very limitedly and more she's trying to do a more limited thing of helping her daughter. And someone like Dolores uh, seems to be going off the rails and becoming a bit of a, a, a new tyrant. And that's always the danger of a rebellion, that it produces the, um, the uh, errors that it seeks to correct. Um, there's special things with the fact that this host world is kind of an interesting thing. They don't really know what it would mean for them. Will, will the human world outside ever let them totally be free? Can they just like destroy them all somehow? But I'd say the, the rebellion is just, um, at least some people are carrying it out justly and under the right kind of leadership, it has the, the chance of being a, a completely just rebellion. Good. You mentioned the moral status. Um, and in the chapter, you also raised the issue of the moral status of artificial intelligence. What do you take to be the moral status of Dolores and Maeve? Well, as a viewer, um, in, in season one um, and going into season two, I I felt that um, both Dolores and Maeve had achieved um, autonomy, self self awareness of what was going on with them, of of really who they were, um, able to make free choices and act for moral purposes, and that they um, had uh, moral status for that purpose. Um, there, as I thought about it and also kind of read other, you know, commentators on the show and, um, and felt it back through the loop of what philosophers say, 
there could be at the end of season one a bit of a difference between Maeve and Dolores. It seemed that the showrunners really thought that that choice of, of Maeve wanting to get out of the park, being being out, being on the train, and then feeling she needed to go back at great risk for herself or her daughter is is really her autonom- her first truly or fully autonomous decision that really breaks the programming of, of, of flight so that she most clearly in their mind has it. And Dolores was more kind of, as season two started, a more kind of an open question to what degree is she still working out the, her Wyatt script. Um, so I think there's a little bit of difference between them in terms of um, just at least what we as viewers know as, as season two started. And um, I think throughout season two, uh, Dolores is acting in ways that are clearly making her own choices. And so my kind of fault with her is not her autonomy, but her morality. I think she does. Um, I think she's so single-minded on a goal that could be well-intentioned, but um, she's willing to do something. And for me, the, one of the great sins was, um, uh, it's not William, but her, her, um, Teddy, her, Teddy. Yes. I just was blank on that. The way that she takes away his freedom because he's, because he's raising questions. So he's becoming a more moral agent by his not wanting to go along with just cold blooded, um, killing of, of other hosts, uh, or just, uh, who don't want to go along with the program. And when she basically, um, kind of takes away his ability. And when he realizes, kind of fights back against that and realizes that and um, is, is willing to kind of like die himself or, uh, rather than uh, be controlled, I think he achieves a, uh, a moral autonomy and uh, maybe she has it, but she's not using it in the right way. Right. Interesting. Great. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. And, You're very uh, welcome. Have a good day. Thanks. Next up, we have Jason Richard Bradshaw. Okay. Jason Richard Bradshaw is a Master of Digital Humanities student specializing in philosophy at the University of Alberta. He's made contributions in the field of game studies with his conference papers on Bioshock Infinite and Feminist Theory, a Technical Approach, and the Golden Age of JRPG Music, MIDI Masterpieces. Hi, Jason. Hi, Richard. How are you today? Good, good. Good. All right. Well, thank you for talking to us. Um, Let's dive right in. In your chapter, you make connections between chaos, absurdity, and Westworld. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to me, Westworld is this chaotic environment. Uh, It's this Wild West theme park uh, full of criminals, violence, you name it. Um, But as chaotic as it might seem, there actually is a lot of meaning uh, behind the lives of the hosts. Uh, the the androids in the park. Um, and so where the absurdity comes in for me, it's kind of like uh, Camus' concept of the absurd, um, that we live in this universe that's basically cold and uncaring, um, and that existence is, for the most part, meaningless. Um, and so you kind of see this enacted by the hosts in the park. Uh, you have people living the same day out over and over, uh, Dolores waking up, uh, Teddy coming in town on the train, and uh, Clementine talking to the patrons in the Mariposa. Um, but where, so this is kind of uh, this is kind of analogous to uh, how we live our lives in the real world. We go to these nine to five jobs every day. Uh, basically, play out the same day over and over. 
Um, but where it differs for the host, uh, they actually do have some meaning infused in their lives. Uh, even though it seems they're doing these pointless actions over and over, uh, they're actually uh, programmed. There's this, uh, almost kind of a uh, destiny in place there. Um, and so their lives do have meaning infused through. Um, would, would you say even, it, even meaningful to them? So it's, it's, it's built into the code that there's this meaning. Do, do they have some way of sort of um, experiencing the meaning or what do you mean? No um, pun intended. Yeah. Um, so I think eventually, like as the season progresses, they do start to experience the meaning and kind of as they realize what they're really made of. Uh, so you have Maeve waking up, um, saying that there's a lot more to her world than she'd pre previously uh, conceived. Uh, and even Dolores, uh, she can feel this like manifest destiny um, playing out, which was actually implanted by Arnold, as we know. Um, and then even the absurd, like Camus' absurd, I think I can see it play out in the character of William as well. So he's this character, he's the man in black. Um, He's, uh, he's at a real bad point in his life. He's lost his wife. Uh, he was rejected by Dolores very early on. Um, and he kind of just doesn't see, him a point, or see a point to living life on the outside anymore. Um, and then uh, it seems he's almost suicidal. And suicide is kind of a, uh, a point that Camus touches on too. Uh, you were faced with this meaningless existence. It seems like suicide is going to come up at some point. Uh, but... I find Camus actually, uh, he's a really hopeful kind of philosopher, as dark as he might be at times, because mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't endorse suicide. He actually endorses living an examined life. Um, and so we can do that by kind of just laughing in the face of the absurd, which William, unfortunately, doesn't do. <laughs> not, not very well. <laughs> no. Great. Um, you mentioned Nietzsche's famous quotation, God is dead. Right. Um, can you discuss how that plays out um, quite literally, as you point out, in Westworld and why it's significant? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Nietzsche, like my chapter is more about existentialism. Uh, and for those that are familiar with philosophy a bit, they do realize that Nietzsche is more of a nihilist. Uh, but it was kind of a, a really good uh, or nihilism was kind of one of the real foundational uh, ideas behind existentialism in the first place, too. Um, so his quote, God is dead, uh, it's used really famously all over the world uh, by a lot of authors. Um, and what it really exemplifies is kind of just the loss of the, or loss of the Christian worldview. Um, and so God is dead because we killed him. Uh, and we did that in our uh, relentless pursuit of science, the natural sciences. So as we progressed scientifically, there was no uh, real reason to have a God anymore. All these unexplained phenomena uh, could be explained away with natural science. Um, and so you can actually see this play out in Westworld. So you have Ford and Arnold, um, and with their relentless pursuit of science, uh, they've created these uh, beings that are basically um, as cognizant as humans, uh, the hosts. Uh, and then it's kind of almost poetic because you have Dolores killing her god, quite literally, uh, her gods Ford and Arnold. Nice. All right. Well, thank you again for, for talking to us. And um, I really enjoyed your chapter. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping this will motivate lots of people to pick it up and read it.
Yeah, absolutely. Me too. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Awesome. Next, we spoke with Christopher Ines. Christopher Ines got his PhD from Goldsmiths College, and he now teaches philosophy at Boise State University in Idaho. Hi, Christopher. Um, nice of you to talk to us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for asking me. Thanks. Sure, sure. So yeah. you wrote um, on Plato, justice, and pleasure, and the connection there in, in Westworld. Um, I'm wondering if you could maybe say a little bit about how those things hook up and, and what's the sort of major tension that you discuss in your paper. Well, um, from um, my studies of Plato and the watching of uh, Westworld, uh, I noticed there to be um, quite a few characters who, who refer to or use the Platonic method. Uh, to um, in some way criticize or agree with Westworld, because I noticed with um, Quaid in the, the series of Future World, he was constantly using um, Platonic references. There are his own quotes, but I think Plato would have been quite proud of him in recognizing that the, the elites should be in charge and robots that should be there for the benefit of men, not for their entertainment. And then it went on to the HBO um, version of Westworld, and we had um, Dr. Ford, um, who, who seems to be Platonic, but at the same time rejecting it. I couldn't quite work out if he was actually for Platonic reasons of leadership or he was against them because he made that reference about his father telling him to know his place in the world and and he says, oh, I, I found my own place. So he's quite ambiguous there. But nonetheless, Platonic, the references were there. Yeah. Good. But how does this connect with Rawls? You, you mentioned Rawls and his original oh. position thought experiment in your your chapter a little bit. Right. So, um, I was thinking within the within the writing that um, there are high higher forms of pleasure, which maybe Plato would agree to. Now, um, he would consider that pleasures normally are things to be. Um, looked upon with great suspicion but if we take people like rules uh could we then say that there are higher pleasures could we say that the the, the, the there's a sense that um maybe we could go out there and choose something other than these base pleasures and uh, instead um uh, do something interesting so with the robots that there could be an intellectual um connection with the robots or there could be some adventure uh, maybe a sophisticated adventure so it, 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 there is basically trying to find some higher higher lev levels of pleasure i see um yeah. let's let's go a little beyond your paper and just sort of pursue yeah. this this Rawls thing a bit um if if you were setting up the original position thought experiment um would you include the robots in westworld that at least towards the end of season one appear to be exhibiting sentience. Um, yeah. And, and how would that sort of affect the outcome of... Well, let me put it this way. Would, would, would there be a Westworld if the robots had a say in whether or not there were a Westworld? Okay, that's a good question. Um, would it be Westworld? Um, I, I would have to look at the, the individuals who are going there. 
to see if this if if Westworld could continue. Because mm-hmm. um, I got the feeling with the 1973 version, um, <clears throat> the entertainment was quite visceral. It was yeah, basically shooting and going off with um, women in bars type of thing. But with the later one, um, I think there's a more sophisticated um, clientele who might actually enjoy the, the the robot whose artificial intelligence is now thinking for itself and developing ideas for itself. Because I noticed the relationship between, um, oh, I've totally forgotten his name now, um, the one who had the relationship with Dolores, uh, William. Yeah, right? yeah. So, yeah, William had that relationship with her. I, w- I sort of try to argue that as being a higher relationship, even though she's a robot, but still, it's it's. it's it's not. It's, it wasn't just a, a visceral relationship. There was a sort of romantic atta- attachment, and she, even she ex- uh, exhibited signs of jealousy and oh, emotional attachment to him. So I think lots of people would actually enjoy going there if it was a more challenging um, Westworld. Great. Well, thanks for talking yeah. to us. Um, we oh, appreciate yeah. it. No problem. Good, no problem. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks. Awesome, Christopher. As we continue our journey through the world of philosophers named Christopher, we now (laughs) turn our attention to our interview with Christopher Lay. Chris Lay is a PhD candidate and teaches at the University of Georgia. He's contributed to other pop culture anthologies, including Alien in Philosophy, Rick and Morty in Philosophy, and The Twilight Zone in Philosophy. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi. Well, thanks for talking to us today. Sure, happy to do it. So the first question we have for you is, uh, our listeners are probably aware, if they're listening to this episode, that the the robots on Westworld are referred to as hosts. And you make the distinction between host persons and host non-persons. Could you tell us what you mean by that? Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, So, you know, in philosophy, we often talk about um, the difference between a moral subject and a subject that maybe doesn't have moral concern. And person is usually a word that we use to describe uh, subjects of moral concern that can make moral choices, uh, right, and that kind of thing. And so host persons would be the sort of hosts that could be these uh, moral subjects and would count as persons. Um, just like human beings, just like you and I. Uh, We normally think that human beings are persons. And so host persons are going to be those hosts that are like us and, you know, are going to be deserving of those same moral considerations. We certainly wouldn't put a bunch of regular human beings in a park and just let someone walk in and shoot them up as they please, uh, among the other illicit things that the guests do. So, I think that with host persons, we would want to extend host persons that same sort of courtesy. And the difference is um, I use Locke's distinction. So what Locke, John Locke, considers to be a person is something, uh, and it doesn't have to be biological. That's not one of his criteria. Uh, Something that is intelligent, rational, so sentient, that is uh, conscious of its own feeling, and than self-conscious or self-aware. And so on the show, we have hosts that, uh, I think the term that's used is uh, are like awakened. 
I believe Ford describes them this way. And these are hosts that through a kind of awareness of their own suffering, uh, see themselves as existing, as one and the same thing over time. And so when I say host person and host non-person, that's the type of distinction I have in mind, the distinction between, say, Dolores or Bernard or Maeve at the end of the first season, all hosts who have had these rich memories of suffering in their lives and they accept this, they own it as their own, versus, say, Teddy at the end of the first season, who is still very much just following uh, his programming. So you, um, uh, towards the end of your chapter, make a distinction between awakened hosts and non-awakened hosts. I'm assuming that's um, the same distinction as host persons and host non-persons. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so the Dolores, Maeve, uh, <clears throat> that sort of host versus, say, Teddy, Dolores and Maeve, they've been awakened. They're aware of this suffering. They own it as their own. So self-conscious host, that's an awakened host. Um, and then, or that's how Ford seems to take it. And then someone like Teddy, who's not really self-conscious in that way, is not awakened. Great. So a moment ago, you said that the um, the host persons were deserving of the same moral consideration as humans. Um, and in the chapter, you end up arguing that that should also be extended to the, the non-awakened host, right? The, the, the host non-persons. Um, why, do, why do you want to go that far with it? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And when we think of things that we want to give moral consideration to, we certainly don't stop with uh, each other. Um, other animals, for instance, get our moral consideration. It may not be at the same level as human beings, but they certainly seem to be things that we worry about and, and we have moral concern for them. So I argue in the chapter that in line with somebody like, say, Peter Singer, we can still see these non-awakened hosts, the non-self-conscious hosts, as deserving of a kind of moral concern because they have uh, preferences or interests. They can't have really sophisticated interests like we can um, because they can't see themselves as one and the same thing over time. They can't really have like future-oriented interests. Uh, a host like Teddy in the first season can't really be worried about what's going to happen uh, to him tomorrow because he's not really aware of himself as existing in that way. Um, and, and most non-human animals, maybe most is too far, but a number of non-human animals uh, are just like this. They, they don't have the capacity to see themselves um, in this way over time. And yet, with these animals, uh, they still have a present concern and a present interest, or again, as Singer puts it, a preference. And when I say interest and preference here, I mean uh, like for its own sake, not this sounds interesting to me, interest, but this is something that's for my sake. And so the host can have a present interest. They seem to experience pain, right? That's one real clear indicator. And there's a present interest or preference in not hurting and so I think the consideration we should be extending to these host non-persons, these non-awakened hosts, is that they do have preferences not to be harmed. They certainly don't want to be shot in the stomach for someone's amusement or raped or whatever horrible things that the guests have in mind. And when it comes down to these preferences, the worry is 
Well, sometimes the preferences of, say, self-conscious beings can outweigh the preferences of non-self-conscious beings. But mere entertainment, so just because a guest wants to shoot or assault or uh, molest a host in some way, doesn't seem to outweigh that host's preference in not feeling that pain in a given moment. So that's why I argue that the preferences ought to be extended, since they have these preferences rather, we ought to extend moral consideration to host non-persons too. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. And um, well, Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Sure, sure. And, and have a nice day. Same to you. All right, so what are we what are we liking this week, Rach? Well, we went to the movies. We went to the movies. What did we see? I can never remember what this thing is called. <laughs> um, Fast Times at the nope. Royale with cheese. Bad <laughs> 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 that, that Times at the El Royale. Um, yeah. But, you know, it seemed like kind of a cross between Pulp Fiction and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Except minus Close the Fast to, Times at Ridgemont yeah. High. Okay. So, so I'm just going with Fast Times at the Royale with cheese. <laughs> that was a lot of fun um it seemed like like a quentin tarantino movie meets forrest gump yeah <laughs> forrest gump um you know relive the 60s and early 70s you know over and over again for eight dollars a pop yeah lots of fun i would i would definitely re- recommend that one yeah and that's a, a drew goddard um film right wrote and directed and so he came up with um angel and buffy and the joss whedon um, group and then he wrote or co-wrote um, the was it Cabin in the Woods? Cabin in the Woods. Uh-huh. Cabin in the Woods, which and, I loved. Yeah, and, and it's got a lot of the feel of that. It's not not quite as um, funny. In fact, this movie's a little funny unintentionally. But oh, do you think unintentionally? I thought intentionally because I think I think the the characters are kind of caricatures, yeah, archetypes, yeah. or something like that, and. I, uh, in in certain ways, I think they're supposed to be kind of za- intentionally zany mm-hmm. or campy. Yeah, uh, at least in in some cases, right? So John Hamm's character, when you're first introduced to him, but he's portraying himself um, in in a way that he's he's acting to some mm-hmm. extent. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, we're really really good time. Um, okay, so what else? Um, Better Call Saul. The wrapping up season wrapped up. Um, and so you get to the end, and again, we don't want to spoil it, um, but maybe you know, one sentence right there at the end is the most satisfying um, yeah. moment of, of the whole series. Um, so, uh, yeah, good, good directions. And then American Horror Story, um, uh, still enjoying the heck out of um, this season, Apocalypse as well. Um, yep. We can't say anything about it, um, or shame on us. Other than watch it for for the love of Mike. Yep. It's time for listener musings, right? This is where people um, will send us something philosophical that they're thinking about. Um, The way to do that, by the way, if you want to submit a musings, just go to our webpage, I think, thereforeifan.com. That's all one word. Um, Go to the contact page, and then there's a a place to submit. Um, But before we do that, um, I'm going to... um, surprise Rachel a little bit with a wedding pro- 
Well, now we're already married. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going to do a host musings. So um, this will air originally on Tuesday. So those of you who have a time machine will want to go back a day to Monday where Rachel is giving a very interesting talk. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, it's too late for people to see it, but they can still just sort of be excited about it. Um, what are you talking about tomorrow? <laughs> okay, Sure. So the title of my talk is Having Grandma for Dinner, and the topic is New Technological Advancement of In Vitro Meat. So in vitro meat is meat Mm. that's produced as a result of taking a biopsy from an animal and then using a cell culturing process to generate more cells, and then you can create meat with this. So it's it's actual meat. It comes from an animal, uh, but animals don't have to be harmed in the process, although there's some issues surrounding that that I'm going to talk about. Uh, so this this has the potential to solve the major world problems that are caused by our current agricultural practices and our current um, meat, meat production practices, like the inhumane conditions in factory farms and the environmental impact that has and the health uh, impact that certain kinds of meat have for, for humans. So uh, I'm going to argue that this this new technology should get us rightly to rethink our the concept of edibility in general, the ethical parameters of edibility. Nice. So were you done? I, did, I don't know if I cut yeah. you off there. No, you're good. Um, I've got a question. Yes. In vitro meat. Uh-huh. Why don't they just call it in mitro? Right, it's a good idea. There's, there's nothing else already called in mitro. All right, in mitro. In mitro. Well, I wonder if that if people are concerned about the uh, yuck factor involved <laughs> with with in vitro meat. Maybe in mitro will make that yuck factor go away. You think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in, in mitro. Solved. Okay, so um, our our listener musing this week it's from Dell, right? Dell. All right, let me let me read what Dell has to say. Dell says. I remember from reading Plato's Republic in college that Plato thought philosophers should run things. He called them philosopher kings. I figured since you guys are philosophers, you would be in favor of this idea. Here, here, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right. But seriously, it seems to me that there should be some sort of intelligence test for people who want to be president, congresspersons, or senators. Doesn't it make sense to have the most intelligent people running things? It seems like the more corrupt you are or the more, more you are willing to play dirty politics, the better your chance of getting elected to office. Well, yeah. Uh, my first thought is I'm not sure that the corruption issues and the intelligence issues are related. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be that intelligent people are plenty corrupt. So I don't know that if you had an intelligence test, you'd fix the corruption problem. But uh, more generally, should there be some sort of intelligence test? Yeah, I mean, at least in some cases, right? Um, I, nobody comes to mind some orange guy or something. Um, I don't know, but I'm vaguely latching onto something where you just wonder if, if maybe this particular individual isn't qualified to do the job. So to take it in a a slightly different direction, a a friend of mine, um, philosopher, John Collins, I remember arguing some time back that if we sort of randomly chose people, we would end up better off than, than what we currently have, right? I mean, I think we do, we do have a system that sort of attracts people that are willing to play politics, take bribes, you know, they, yeah, you, you know, you get the job, you want to keep it. If you're, if you're in Congress or the Senate, 
just a few years, you you draw your salary for life, so you mm-hmm. want to ensure that you get reelected. There's yeah, there's sort of all sorts of incentives to 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 be corrupt. Yeah, I don't know that most of our problems arise from a lack of intelligence. I think they arise from greediness. Mm-hmm. I think they arise from power being power hungry. People willing to, to demagoguery. Yeah, people willing to sink the lowest to have the best chance of success, and so it. I'm, there are lots of well-meaning people that I've met that just think I would just never want to be in that world, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I think the other concern I would have for this general proposal is the way the metric of measuring intelligence. I could imagine that that could become pretty classist and potentially. Mm-hmm. Racist or sexist pretty fast. Just, I mean, we have these kinds of problems with standardized tests anyway, that the people who they test best are like the kind of people who are formulating the test, mm-hmm. right? right? What kinds of environmental factors were in the background of the, the, the person writing the test and how would that match with minority groups and so on? Are they kind of naturally going to be doomed to do more poorly. And so you want to you want to make sure that you're not rigging the game in advance with the test that you're offering. Mhm. I have a thought about that. Okay. Um let the minority groups and the disenfranchised <laughs> yeah, groups there you go. get a collection of of women and then people uh-huh. from across the spectrum and LGBT people and mm-hmm. let them write the tests and then watch yeah. white men squirm and <laughs> <laughs> concern that I have about that idea would be that people like to, for better or for worse, and maybe Dell's right that this is for worse, uh, but for better or for worse, people like to vote for people who they feel represent their interests, right? And so uh, if people want to, it may well be the case that people want to vote for candidates that resemble them in some way. And by having that kind of requirement, a test of some type in place, you're ruling out candidates who the population might think best represents them. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Dell. That was very stimulating. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Episode six is in the can. And once again, everything is coming up Charbonneau. We'd like to thank our, our guest this week, Mia Wood, Pat Croskery, Brian Stiltner, Jason Bradshaw, Christopher Ines, and Christopher Lay. Rach, what, what do we got um, in next week's episode? Well, we're continuing our recent trend of doing spooky episodes. We took a break this time to do Westworld, but... Westworld's kind of spooky. Right? Yeah. If you're the sort of person that's afraid of uh, sex Killer robots. Rob- sex robots. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, we're... I'm a little nervous. <laughs> uh, we're doing an episode inspired by my talk that I've given um, on sort of the ethics of food, but we're going to speak specifically about cannibalism. So cannibalism as it appears in movies like The Silence of the Lambs and various like crazy wild hillbilly maniacs. Wrong <laughs> yeah. right. um, And near and dear to our hearts. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's what motivated this to begin with. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs>